Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Strap on your parachute. It's time for What Goes Up with Sarah Ponzek and Mike Regan. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team at Bloomberg. This week on the show, COVID-19 has changed how we all live and how many invest. And that evolution is still taking place. So how has it all changed for the type of investor that some would call an opportunistic bear, a short seller? We speak with one of the best in the industry. And of course, we will close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. And please, if you saw something crazy, give us a call and let us know about it on the Bloomberg Podcast Hotline at 646-324-3490 and leave us a voicemail. Maybe we'll play it on the show. Also, you can tweet in our general direction at podcasts and let us know the craziest thing you saw in markets and we'll we'll perhaps uh, bring it up in the show. I got a couple crazy things, Sarah. Get ready. I'm coming in hot. I'm going to see if you can top yours from last week because I'm still impressed um, by it, Mike. But also, I do want to say we got a reply from one of our listeners on Twitter who reached out in response to one of our crazy things from last week. So I also have that tweet handy for us to read out. Absolutely. Good. We like the interaction. So keep the tweets coming. Keep the voicemails coming. We're, We're happy to hear uh, your crazy things and just a general opinion of the show, who you think would be a good guest. We're open to all your suggestions here and what goes up. Sarah, before we introduce our guests, I got to give a shout out and a thank you to my friend Dave. I'm actually in my friend's basement right now because there's work being done at my house and these guys are making a lot of noise and making even more noise is my, my darn dog who will not shut up. So thanks to Dave for letting me uh, squat in his basement here. Well, is Dave a listener of the podcast? I'll probably listen to this one if I tell him I got <laughs> okay, a shout Okay, good, good. out. And his kid's got one of those cool video game chairs. You know, I feel like Captain Kirk here sits, sitting in the chair. If only you had the big headphones on, too. I, I know, I know. I need, I, need more, I need more gear. But as you said, uh, Sarah, uh, joining the show this week, actually second time on the show, uh, he's the founder and chief investment officer of the hedge fund Spruce Point Capital Management, uh, he's a very successful uh, short seller and researcher into companies uh, and, and short ideas. Um, his name is Ben Axler. Also, Sarah, I'm claiming this guy's a Jersey guy, too. I know I don't think he lives there anymore, but he is a Jersey guy at heart. We've got ben, two welcome in a row. back to the show. Let's be clear. That's South Jersey, not North Jersey. There. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. I'll say being from Florida, making that South versus North distinction is pretty, pretty important, too. It's important. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> You know, ben, as uh, Sarah alluded to in the introduction, you know, you've kind of made your your name and your fame as a short seller, but your fund is a long short fund. And I'm just curious, I know, it, especially in the volatility early in this year, was it almost time to take your, your short seller hat off and, and start looking at longs? I mean, did, any opportunities on the long end for you this year? Yeah, I mean, certainly um, in March when 
there was a lot of forced deleveraging and forced selling that was, you know, a good time to rebalance the book a little bit, you know, take some opportunistic gains uh, uh, on the short side um, and look to rebalance, look to find, you know, opportunistic longs. More of our longs are, you know, index hedges. You know, with what we're trying to do, we're trying to find fundamentally flawed companies with poor governance, uh, bad accounting, short those and be, you know, long an underlying index, like an, uh, an industry index, and then create alpha, right, by uh, benefiting from the decline in the, the overvalued or poorly organized security and, uh, you know, be hedged with some, some underlying index there. So yeah, it was a great time to rebalance and uh, uh, reorganize and rethink about the strategy um, in the post-COVID world. So like you said, you like to really dig into statements, balance sheets, and, and find issues with accounting. But I am just curious, there's this one index that I track often, just kind of as a sentiment indicator of what's going on in the market. And that's a Goldman Sachs basket of the most shorted stocks. And it hit a record high. I, I tweeted about this. And my little claim to fame, I guess, is that it went viral. Jim Chanos brought it up in a conversation and mentioned that a Bloomberg reporter had written RIP shorts. And I do want to get your sense. Like, yes, Yes, you focus on individual companies, but if you look at this market from a whole, how difficult has it been to be someone who really does make a business or make a profit from being bearish on companies? No, it's been it's incredibly difficult and it's getting more difficult. I think the biggest impediment to successful short selling is, you know, monetary policy and and what the Fed's, you know, looking to do, which is, you know, bring rates to ultra low, ultra low levels that make, you know, holding cash, you know, unattractive. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly looking at, you know, interest rates and what, what banks are offering, high yield savings banks, which at the beginning of the year were offering two, two and a quarter, two and a half percent are now offering 60 basis points. So, you know, you look at inflation and then you, you take uh, the after tax gain on, on holding money in a high yield savings account and you're losing money, right? So um, the money, uh, relatively speaking, is, is going into the market. Some people view the market as attractive, um, and that's pushing up valuations, which makes uh, it very difficult to short individual securities, particularly individual securities that are heavily, you know, index owned. Um, as you said, now there's an index that even tracks most shorted um, stocks. I mean, there's an index for almost everything, and then you have a lot of money following index behavior. So what we're trying to do is find stocks that are not heavily indexed owned, that are heavily retail traded or hedge fund owned. Uh, that way we know there's an act, hopefully an active holder that we can communicate with and try to convince them of our alternative um, viewpoints on the stock. So, so yeah, it's gotten more difficult. It's, it's very um, rate dependent, index dependent, but there are still ways to be successful by, you know, navigating um, what works and what doesn't. Well, sorry, I like that humble brag you got in there about your tweet that went viral. That was, that was well done. I'm really I, proud I, of I it. Had, <laughs> I had a viral tweet recently, too. It was I I was drinking a beer and a, a bumblebee landed in my beer and drank itself to death. And, and I, I took a video of it. That tweet went viral, too, but maybe not as cool as yours. I, I saw that video. That's the one that went viral, Mike. That was uh, sort of, maybe not of, quite I viral. Felt, I kind of felt bad for the bee, honestly. Yeah, a, lot of people, a lot of people were mad at me for not saving that bee, but... I'm I'm a I'm a little chicken. It was a good cane, Ben. A good Jersey beer, Kane. I couldn't I couldn't uh, let that be uh, get away with drinking too much of it. But Sarah, to your point about the the most shorted, uh, you know, uh, index, uh, Goldman index. Ben, I think if I know your process a little bit the way I do, 
I think you t you probably tend to stay away from the type of sort of popular crowded shorts that end up on a list like that. Is that sort of an intentional thing? Um, you know, you try to f sort of go where other shorts, you know, aren't really crowded into and, and making it sort of the, the position susceptible to a squeeze? Yeah, no, that's a great point, Mike. Um, I, I would say some of my least successful shorts have been ones that, you know, the short interest has been over 10 or 15% it indicates some level of crowdedness and or, you know, there's already a well-known short thesis in the marketplace. Um, so our better success has been um, with companies, short interest under 5%, ideas not heavily socialized, you know, where we scour the public, you know, blogosphere and don't see any evidence that anyone's talked about a particular stock. Um, you know, we've written two reports recently, one on Sonova, another one on GFL Environmental, relatively undiscussed companies, still multi-billion dollar market caps where we can be a leading voice, you know, companies with low short interest where, you know, the risk of a squeeze is low. So, Ben, something that I've thought a lot about lately and I feel like we hear about constantly is how the coronavirus is changing trends uh, and what that may mean. And oftentimes people point to big mega cap tech companies or the likes of Zoom, which we are using right now, um, that really enable people to work from home, that enable a digitized environment. And I'm curious from your perspective, the way that you think, if there are any trends that you see really emerging from what's happened in 2020 and lasting and how you can then funnel that into possibly your process or just a broad investing process in general. Yeah, no, absolutely. We're definitely looking at how COVID has reshaped the universe and the world we know. And, and certainly, you know, one of our key early conclusions was that the, you know, internet and e-commerce was going to, was going to really grow its share of the consumer's um, purchasing behavior. You know, we identified a company earlier this year that we, we've shorted and been public about called Prestige Brands. Um, they're a roll-up of OTC um, branded products. Um, these could be throat lozenges um, or other things you might find in a Rite Aid or a CVS in the drugstore. They have a relatively undeveloped e-commerce strategy. You know, under 10% of their sales are e-commerce, and they sell a brand, you know, a branded product. When you know, for example, if you go into CVS or Walmart, you might find a store brand at a cheaper price. So you know, in the COVID world, you have high unemployment. You have consumers looking to save money. Um, and you have consumers looking to shop online. So a company like Prestige Brands, we believe, is ill-suited for this with a higher price product and a very undeveloped e-commerce strategy. So, you know, absolutely, we're, we're thinking about this. I mean, these are going to be longer-term impacted trends. We had always been vocal in our belief that, you know, a vaccine and a resolution to this pandemic was going to take longer than anticipated. We're continuing to think about ways in um, which companies are going to benefit and and be at a disadvantage in this new paradigm. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Yeah, Ben, I know some of your early successes were with uh, companies uh, from China that had, had listed in the U.S. I feel like that's come full circle now where there's so much scrutiny on those companies. The, the Trump administration obviously putting a lot of uh, threats and, and pressure on um, potentially delisting them, you know, that sort of thing. Has that opportunity set sort of been exhausted or maybe not exhausted, but, you know, it, it seemed to be a, a very sort of, not to say shooting fish in a barrel, but a, but almost a very lucrative, you know, fertile place to look for shorts, say, five to 10 years ago. Is that, uh, are there still opportunities there or has the rest of the world caught up with the people who were looking skeptically at China and, and even the regulators in the U.S. catching up to some degree? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say um, it's definitely gotten harder um, in the quest to find, you know, find, exploit uh, and hold accountable Chinese investment scams. Um, the first generation that I was involved with back in 2008, 9 and 10 exposing those companies, it was like shooting, what do they say, fish in a barrel or ducks in a barrel. Um, so, some of the frauds, were very obvious, um, but it's like a cat and mouse game, right? The uh, you know, the mouse got smarter and figured out, you know, how to avoid the cat. Um, so successive generations of, of Chinese frauds have been harder to identify. And also I would point out, you know, getting information out of China's been very hard. I mean, the, the Chinese are very attuned to the fact that short sellers are looking at their stocks here on the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. And so accessing information um, that was more easily available 10 years ago is getting harder. And frankly, that's, you know, one of the reasons, you know, why we've been spending a little bit less time on our shorts in China. We've actually found more success up in Canada. We spent a lot of time looking at the Canadian market, which is very receptive to short selling, uh, has been receptive to us. Um, and, and we think is, you know, underserved from a short selling perspective. Um, but there are still opportunities globally. China's definitely gotten harder but other markets, other companies from around the world that come here certainly are good opportunities for us to, you know, to really dig in. So sticking with factors then that make your job harder, you mentioned the Fed earlier on in the show, monetary policy. Looking even further than that, because I remember the last time you came on the show, we discussed how Fed policy and decreasing regulation, I'll throw right now, although the economy needed it, but fiscal policy and a growing deficit all of these factors right now, which are really helping stocks rise in general. At the same time, though, do they make your job at all easier? The fact that there are companies that can prosper, that can grow in this type of environment that maybe otherwise wouldn't be able to do so or have other underlying issues at stake that can be pinpointed? No, that's a great question, actually. Um, there are puts and takes with everything, right? I would say the opportunities currently are that we're seeing very immature, very poorly diligenced companies come public, probably prematurely, 
Um, you've probably heard a lot about the um, ebullience and froth in the SPAC market, special purpose acquisition corporations, raising money, um, some with almost very limited defined purposes going out, buying companies and helping them accelerate their IPO process quicker than the traditional route. That certainly has caught our attention because those companies, as I said, we believe are a little bit less diligent um, and, and a little premature. Um, so those are those are good opportunities, the SPACs. And even the traditional IPOs that are that are coming public now, you know, we're seeing them uh, come public with less regulatory scrutiny too. I mean, the SEC has sort of lowered the bar a little bit in terms of, you know, a company not necessarily needing an audit uh, or certain um, attestations uh, if they're below a certain threshold level. These are opportunities for us, no doubt. Um, we, you know, we, and we certainly welcome them. Interesting you say that because I think when the whole WeWork debacle went down, you know, and they, you know, couldn't get that IPO to the finish line, um, I think a lot of people interpreted that as, uh, you know, it's it's tough to get sort of a questionable company to public markets, but you, you're, you're not finding that to be the case, it sounds like. No, I mean, one thing that we like to look at is, uh, you know, companies are very keen on promoting their EBITDA or their adjusted EBITDA. With WeWork, I remember... The whole um, pushback was, you know, WeWork had defined a community EBITDA, which, uh, <laughs> you know, it was uh, highly adjusted. I mean, look, we wrote a report on a company called GFL recently, and they had their run rate EBITDA, and it came with a paragraph this long of disclaimers about what, <laughs> how they were defining it. And, and these are big red flags. I mean, investors have to get really comfortable with language in an EBITDA that you could drive a truck through um, and all the assumptions that management can put into it. But this is a classic sign of a, you know, of a bull market when companies are able to sell highly, highly adjusted, highly aggressive interpretations of EBITDA. So you said these are classic signs of a bull market. And every time I hear that, it's so amazing to me because to some, these might seem like late cycle signals, but we just experienced a recession and the fastest fall into a bear market on record. I mean, when you see what's going on with SPACs, uh, when you see other factors, as you just mentioned, of the sort, what does that tell you about where we stand in the market cycle? Because it just seems like everything is so twisted lately. I think it speaks... And and um, recent evidence points to the fact that the cycles are getting shorter and they're getting more severe. I remember not long ago in December of 18, when you know Donald Trump was ratcheting up his China trade war rhetoric, and the market corrected pretty swiftly in in December. And then with COVID and slowdown, the market corrected even bigger. I, I can't tell you what the next shock shock is going to be, but. It wouldn't surprise me if we have an, an even bigger drawdown, you know, next time. Each each of these cycles, you're seeing liquidity getting, look, cycles are good and, and necessary, particularly in my industry where, you know, you have hedge funds selling strategies and their ability to reduce alpha and manage risk. And then what happens is, you know, when the market corrects really swiftly, you, you find out who who is doing what they're saying and, you know, who's really managing risk and who's not. And the ones that aren't are getting, you know, wiped out of the system. And, the, you know, the general liquidity in the market we found has been going down. So I would expect, you know, more cyclicality. I would expect uh, the magnitude of the drawdowns and, and the intensity to increase each time. And yeah, and, and, and I think possibly diminishing returns to what 
the Fed can do. I mean, they've already pulled out unprecedented, you know, measures in buying ETFs. And I don't know how many more um, arrows they, they have left in the quiver to solve increasingly gro- growing problems. And Sarah, just one note to listeners, you know, Ben mentioned a few of the, the stocks he's he's short. Just out of interest uh, of fairness to them, I am going to try to dig up all the comments those companies have made in response to Ben. No offense, Ben, some some of them not very friendly towards towards you, as you're going <laughs> to expect, but but uh, he's rattle, rattling them off left and right. So I'll try to find them and, and we'll include those comments at the end of the episode. But I encourage anyone who's interested in this you can read pretty much everything Ben's ever written about a company on his website at Spruce Point. Uh, was it SprucePointCapital.com, Ben? SprucePointCap, C-A-P-A.com, yeah. SprucePointCap. And there's some fat. your whole method I find fascinating. I mean, it's really deep dive and, and heavy duty research. So we will include the, the company's comments. Um, and anyone, you know, obviously as an investor, you have to do your own due diligence. And, and if you're interested in what... Ben has to say, read, read his reports uh, and, and make up your own mind, uh, you know, but we will include uh, any comments we've gotten from the com- companies at the end of the episode. You mean the, the, the no <laughs> comment comment? <laughs> That's usually- There's several no comments. Yeah, there's no there's comment. comment. <laughs> I was hoping you'd only talk about the ones who had no comments. That makes it a lot easier. But there's, there's, sure, there's Ben's seen them all, though. <laughs> And, you know, and anyone anyone who's paid attention to this stuff knows that the judge and jury in this obviously is the market. So we'll see how these trades work out. Um, we always like to point out, too, like in some cases where, you know, we, we have a short recommendation and the stock goes up. Well, the whole market's gone up. You have to measure, like, how, how has it gone up relative to the industry and the market? And what we find is a lot of the times that the names that we've written, they tend to underperform. Um, and that's really where, the you know, alpha is generated. So you do obviously a lot of digging into balance sheets and a lot of accounting work. And I want to get your take, something I've been thinking a lot about, because I read a report that talked about how now about 84% of the S&P 500's value is from intangible assets. How do you possibly view intangibles when that's not necessarily something that's going to show up in writing on a balance sheet? Or is it something that you guys think about when you are thinking about a new short position? No, absolutely. And then GFL Environmental, I keep referencing, is is one that we wrote about as a perfect example. I mean, they're a roll-up of over 140-plus companies in the waste management industry and you know every time you buy a company you buy the assets uh, of the business you buy the people and then sort of everything above that that you can't ascribe value to is typically goodwill and intangibles it's sort of a plug think of it as an accounting plug accounting magic you know it's a measure to a degree of how much a company is overpaying you know for an asset and you know in the case of gfl they have six and a half billion dollars of goodwill from acquiring so many businesses to the point where, you know, goodwill is almost 100% of their market cap, which is an extreme measure in that industry. But but yeah, I mean, goodwill um, is highly susceptible to impairment um, because, you know, what we do at Spruce Point is look to see, okay, you know, any company can buy another company, but how, how do they perform post-acquisition? And did they pay a fair price? And a lot of times we find serial acquirers like GFL that are buying so many businesses, they bite off a little bit more than they can chew and, and end up having to impair that goodwill down the road once it becomes clear that the 
businesses haven't performed up to expectations and or they've overpaid for that. So, yeah, goodwills and intangibles is definitely certainly something we look heavily at. Uh, We look to see what percentage of the balance sheets assets um, they are and also, you know, how big is that goodwill and intangibles um, relative to other companies in the industry to assess, you know, how aggressive or, or conservative has management been in their accounting for, for deals. But I wanted to go back to something you pointed out earlier. You said you're finding a lot of opportunities in Canada. I wonder if that's if there's something systemic at play there. You know, are the Canadian regulators asleep on the job or is it Canadian investors are too polite to be short <laughs> sellers? Maybe I, I picture them being very polite. Is, is there any or is it just one of those pockets of the market that's just been over overlooked by guys like you for some reason? I think it's been it's been overlooked, um, but I think structurally there's a little bit of a difference there. Um, I think it's more of a retail driven investor market. They do have you know institutions and pension funds, but it's not as deep um, and developed as as it is here. Um, so you find a lot of a lot of you know retail participation. You also have to understand the Canadian economy is slightly different than ours, right? Um, particularly, they have heavy natural resources a lot of gold and silver mining and resource mining. So those are certainly industries that are prone to uh, promotion, so so to speak, you know, where promoters promote that they have the next world's greatest gold mine, for example, um, somewhere up on the northern Yukon. Um, But no, I think it's a little bit more retail driven, a little bit less developed from an institutional point of view. And also fewer, I would say there's fewer research coverage providers, um, in Canada, and particularly alternative research uh, uh, research providers, you you won't you don't find many independent firms independent of the major banks, you know, up in Canada. So that that's another uh, reason there's opportunity there. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know, Ben, I know a lot of times hedge fund managers don't want to say what their returns are year to date. Uh, but if that's the case with you, can you tell us good year, bad year? What kind of year are you having? I can tell you, uh, you know, we're still in business. Uh, we haven't laid anybody <laughs> off. We haven't we haven't laid any, anybody off. Uh, and, you know, we're selectively looking to hire, too. So I'm um, not allowed to talk about returns you know, publicly, but, um, you know, I still have my hair left. On the top, on the top. That's the most important. That's I, the most important. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't lost, you know, too much hair this year and, uh, you know, everything, everything is good on our end. I, I can just say that. 
Well, that's great to hear. And, you know, you make a good point. I've actually been experiencing more hair loss this year than usual. And maybe it's just because 2020. Really? Yeah. It's bad. I find hair everywhere. Really? It's horrible. <laughs> no kidding. Well, I, I, I get it. In my house, you know, three daughters and a wife, it's like uh, and a and dog. And a dog. Well, no, your dog's Yeah, the dog doesn't shed. So. My, my daughter shed a lot, though. I don't I don't get it. I, I didn't realize <laughs> you you shed as much hair. I'm doing pretty good. I, I'm proud of I got a, a pretty good rug on top still. Just throwing that out there for the <laughs> listeners who don't know. I, th- I think we're getting to, th- to the crazy part. Is it's getting a little crazy, Sarah? Oh, yeah. The crazy part is in, is in our hair discussion. The crazy part, Charlie Pellet okay. will have to tell us. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. All right, Sarah. I'm double dipping. I've got two. But let's start with you. Let's hear what you got. All right, so this one's for you because I know you love alternative yes, investments. And, the, the more alternative, uh, the better. A, uh, yeah, so it's pretty alternative, but it's not as alternative as uh, Michael Jackson IV bag. I will say that. <laughs> um, ben, this was Mike's most recent crazy thing. He really went off the grid with that one. Um, but this was a headline uh, that came across the Bloomberg Terminal this past week. And it said, J.P. Morgan sees frequent flyer points as alternative for investors. (laughs) And the lead read, J.P. Morgan wants to help turn airline and hotel loyalty points into an asset akin to stock or corn futures. Uh, So basically, it's this idea uh, that J.P. Morgan wants to go ahead. They're working with Affinity Capital Exchange to let companies turn reward programs into a standardized exchangeable currency that can be traded by institutional investors. Um, So pretty, pretty interesting. uh, And I had to raise it in the alternative space. Well, and can more importantly, can J.P. Morgan spoof it? I don't know if you saw. They just, they just, they just set out a billion dollars. Well. <laughs> Can they spoof yeah. a market that they've created? <laughs> well, well, the exchange hasn't been created yet, uh, so to be seen. But I gotta say, I've heard crazier ideas. I don't know. I, I, it's definitely crazy, Sarah. I give you props for that. Right. Well, that's the thing. It's it's an alternative investment, but it doesn't seem that alternative in this day and age. I mean, you also think about uh, a lot of these airlines putting loyalty points down as collateral. Yeah. Uh, in 2020, I mean, it it seems like it's almost a logical progression. Maybe is is that stuff transferable? I guess they would have to agree to get the companies to to allow it to be transferred. You know, Charlie Pellet is the expert on airline points and credit card points. Well, that guy's always got like five credit cards opening and shutting, and he's got a, a pocket full of CVS coupons. The guy knows the guy knows that space pretty well. Everything. We'll have to bring him. Hey Ben, how about you? Have you seen anything crazy this week? Oh boy, every day is a crazy day. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, what's crazy, so speaking of JP Morgan, you know, we um, released a new report on Sonova Energy. They're a, um, basically a solar financing company. Right now, alternative energy stocks are um, very hot, on fire, so to speak. Um, I guess possibly discounting Demo- you know, Democratic win and, and maybe some more supportive these money losing businesses. But, you know, with Sonova, they're, um, you know, we think they're overvalued because they're not really a solar company, but they just finance the solar installation. And JP Morgan, of all of all banks that we were uh, just talking about, you know, upgraded their sector and upped all the price targets, including for Sonova. And, uh, you know, JP Morgan um, should probably receive a gift from the, the chairman of the audit committee of Sonova, because you know when the when the price of Sonova 
rose uh, yesterday. He unloaded a couple hundred thousand shares. So we always look to see what insiders are doing, and you know when insiders are are selling on an up on a nice upgrade from from a bank. Um, you know that's something that uh, always catches our eye. That's pretty interesting. I like how you bring it back home there, Ben. Nice, well done, well done. <laughs> All right, Sarah, I got a good one. You have two. I got two Let's good hear ones. Them. I don't know. I like yours though. I, this is some stiff competition this week. So we just had recently the twelfth anniversary of Lehman Brothers' failure, and what I find remarkable about this story is that twelve years later, everything's still not resolved. And in fact, there are investors in two subordinated bonds from Lehman that just found out they're going to get paid. They're going to receive a payment uh, in sometime in December, I believe it is. Now, they haven't said the size of the payment, but these was it was one was a five hundred million dollar issue and the other was in euros, a two hundred million euro issue. They were called uh, enhanced capital advantage preferred securities. So I don't know how enhanced they were, but uh, the Bloomberg story notes that the the last bid uh, on record for one of them was at less than one cent uh, on the dollar. So who knows what the payday is, but but it'll be something. Maybe that one that less than one cent bid will end up being a uh, a good trade. Who knows? But I, I did you also find this on NI Auction Go? You know, this was what most read. That's one of my other tips. Is I always look at the most read stories of the week, oh, that's and easy, I think people. People are as, as amazed as I was that, A, it's, it blows my mind that this is still going on 12 years older, that it's everything's not resolved. And, and how long that's, a, you know, it just gives you an idea of how big of a, a, a blow up that was and how messy it was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're getting their, they're getting their payday for sure. But then here's my other. 12 years later, they're still on the job for the <laughs> right. same case. Uh, the billable hours. I'd love to see a total tally of, of legal billable hours for the Lehman Brothers. I mean, it's got to be in the millions of hours. By oh, now, I can't I even imagine. I can't even imagine. But uh, here's my fun one from the alternative asset space. Barack Obama's high school basketball jersey from 1979 is up for auction at Julian's Auctions, uh, California-based auction uh, house. Barack Obama's High school basketball jersey, 1979. Sarah, I'm guessing no one would buy the shorts from that era. The shorts were atrocious. Basketball shorts were atrocious in that era. No shorts, but jersey. But the jersey my favorite shorts favorite part short. about it, his number was 23, just like Michael Jordan, but Aww. but uh, a couple decades earlier. And you know what time it is, Sarah? It's time to play Price is Right on what you would bid yep. for Barack Obama's high school jersey. You too, Ben. What, what's your What's your bid? Barack Obama's high school does it is it autographed? It's basketball jerseys. Not all. I don't believe it's autographed, and I don't think they had names on the jerseys. Of high, they don't. It's gonna say. Does it say Obama on the back? That makes a huge. They don't difference. say. Uh, they don't say if the if the name is included. I'm assuming not, just from my general knowledge of 1970s high school basketball, dating myself a little bit there, Ben. But also, it comes with a yearbook with pictures of him. Uh, nice form. Nice shot. Uh, with the jersey on, and I mean, look as a novelty. If the proceeds went to charity, I'd, I'd for a couple grand, I, you know, I'd wear as a Halloween, uh, maybe in a Halloween costume. <laughs> All right, Sarah. I, Sarah's usually the highball bidder on these things, Ben. You're, I, Ben's. Oh, I was so terribly off last week, but so was our guest. <laughs> um, 
But but you know what? I'm I'm gonna bring it much lower this time around, and I'll go with uh, I'll go with twenty thousand. Okay, twenty thousand, two thousand. Okay, you win. Yours. <laughs> ben, Sarah I'm not was, saying I'll pay that, but someone will. Sarah was willing to bid two hundred and fifty k for Michael Jackson's uh, IV bag, bloodstained, albeit IV bag. Talk about froth in the market. I think Sarah's our poster child for froth in the the alternative. Yep. So the auction house, and you know. Who knows how accurate this is? They're hoping for one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand for the jersey. See, I was I was gonna go with two hundred again, but because I was so terribly <laughs> off last week, I was said no. There's absolutely no way I can say that once again. <laughs> um, I don't know. I uh, I don't know about you. I'm from South Florida, a big Heat fan. So I was watching the Heat Lakers game Wednesday, and they kept showing. Obama as one of the virtual fans, and I don't know what he or who he was talking to, but he just kept looking at the camera and speaking. And you could obviously <laughs> hear what he was saying. That was, That's pretty good. Was, hey, that's yeah. shaping up to be a good series. Yeah, except for the blowout that we had uh, in favor <laughs> of the opposite way that I was hoping. Um, no, but I, I do want to read that tweet that we got uh, from one of our listeners, too. So this comes from at David Taggart, uh, David Taggart, pdmacro.com. And last week we spoke about Amazon and Echelon and this supposed Prime bike that was coming out for $500. There was this huge saga back and forth. Anyway, um, so, you know, this this kind of uh, comes back to you, too. I don't know if anyone's called a Cameo. You know that app or that website that you can go on and you can get a celebrity um, to say happy birthday or whatever it is uh, to anyone. But what this uh, listener did was he shared with us that the Peloton girl, her name's Monica Ruiz, um, she's on Instagram and also on Cameo, and another Twitter user, at TypicalVC, booked her, the girl from that now infamous Peloton commercial, <laughs> to actually send a Cameo um, to Citron Research because they... Uh, infamously put out a short call on Peloton, and it's honestly hilarious. It's 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 hysterical, um, especially if you've seen that. That is pretty funny. That went horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty funny. All right, maybe we'll book some of Ben's shorts for some cameos just to get under his skin. <laughs> Do any of them have some bad commercials out there? Not that I know of. <laughs> no, not so much. <laughs> Whoever thought a bad commercial would be a, a, the basis of a good short, it's amazing. But I guess it didn't last long. And finally, Sarah, I want to read uh, those comments from some of the companies that Ben has written about. Um, uh, GFL Environmental responded to Ben's report after it came out in August. Uh, He said Spruce Point Capital's commentary on the company is consistent with a, quote, short and distort strategy. Uh, Lead independent director Dino Chiesa said that the board had reviewed the allegations and found them deeply flawed. Uh, he said the board stands by its management team and that GFL's financial disclosures are accurate in all material respects, appropriate and comply with all regulatory requirements. Uh, CEO Patrick Dovigi also issued a statement. Uh, he too called the statements by Spruce Point misleading, said they contained factual errors. He did not specify what the factual errors were. Uh, he said he believes the acquisitions are, quote, solely intended to benefit the author of the report, who has disclosed that it stands to realize significant gains in the event that the stock price of GFL declines. And I did receive a response from Sonova Energy International. This is 
via Kelsey Holtberg, uh, the chief of staff in the office of the CEO. The statement reads, quote, we disagree with the substance and merit of the report. As disclosed in the Form 4, shares sold by the chair of the audit committee were sold pursuant to a 10B51 plan, entered into in advance of Spruce Point's report in accordance with SEC rules and the company's policies. We have not yet received response from Prestige Consumer Healthcare to Ben's report. We will uh, update you with any comment we receive from them in future episodes. That does it. Ben Axler, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you. My pleasure. Let's do it again soon. Absolutely. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. Also, thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Gaspore. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.